One of the main things we're doing on a Sunday morning is we're opening up the Bible, and we want to hear like God speak to us. And so that's what I'm praying that God does for us this morning. So Acts chapter 15 is where we've, we've gotten to. Um, I've been around for about a year and a half now, maybe a little bit more, as long as this church has, has been around, and it's been cool to see it grow. Like, it, one of the, one of the like, spaces that you can see that happen is a Sunday morning like this, and so some of my favorite memories that I will always look back on, I'll remember like the Sheraton Hotel fondly, even though the renovations are now happening, like as we're on our way out, we're going to this, this new building, but I'll always look back to, to Sunday morning and just have these snapshots, these memories of seeing like God just grow his church and do incredible things around us. And like so many of your stories and people that like I actually know now that I remember meeting you for the first time when you came in on a Sunday morning. And so it's been like an honor to get to be a part of that. And every Sunday morning, as I just kind of like walk around in the back and meet new people, one of like the, the deepest questions that I'm asking as I'm looking around at the crowd is this. If we had to get in like an all out brawl with some other large group of people that came in here, like could we take them? Like, I had the first thought, it was like during the CrossFit Games last summer, and I was just kind of like knowing what's happening across the street, and I'm like, okay, so here we are, here's this people, here's like who God is bringing, and if like, if something went down, if we had to get in like this all-out, scrap-it-out brawl with another group, like, could we handle it? Would we be ready? So some of you are scouting out like, hey, I want to get coffee with this person, or I wonder if they could serve on welcome team, or I wonder if they could be in the band. I'm just kind of looking around being like, do we have what it takes? What type of skills does this person have? And some of you know this because I've, I've uh, you know, jokingly talked to you about this on a Sunday, on a Sunday morning. And, and listen, I have been more and more confident as the weeks have gone on that like, yes, I think we can. We've got some like ex-wrestlers in this room, ex-athletes, ex-military there's some people in this room, some women that are taking a class called body combat at the Princeton Club, like trying to turn your whole body into a weapon. I like that. We have, uh, we have some, uh, some other women in our church that have outfitted their keychains as weapons. I won't name names to conceal your identity, but I know that you kind of have like some special things on, on your keychain. Uh, there's people at the men's retreat that like have like military level abilities of, of like strategy and, and like knowing how to like look at, look at rooms and, and know what to do. We've got Rob over here. He's like continued to be with us this whole time. Some of you guys aren't big like Rob, but I know you're scrappy. And, and as our numbers have increased, I've just felt more and more confident that like, yes, we've got him. And I know that some of you are, are fired up like me about that. And I'm obviously joking. You know, some of you are, are a little bit weirded out. So yes, I am joking. I don't think we would actually have to fight anybody. But I just wonder like if we had to, if we had to, <laughs> could we do it? And, you know, fighting and aggression is not something we typically talk about in the church or, like, know exactly what to do with, but it's, there's, like, this drive that's inside of us. And, like, how many of you would, would consider yourself, like, a fighter? Like, if there's a fight, like, you're, you're running towards the fight. Who are, who are the fighters in the room? Just raise your hand. The other, the other person, who are, who are more of, like, the peacemakers, the peacekeepers? There's a fight breaking out, and you're like, I'm just trying to bring people together, <laughs> trying to stop the fight, trying to settle this with conversation. Who are, who are the avoiders? You, you avoid conflict, you, you run away. It's okay, it's okay. We kind of need all groups of those people. Now listen, in Acts chapter 15 today, we're gonna see the church get in a fight. The church is gonna get in a fight and what we're gonna see is like this fight that breaks out in the early church and it's actually like a holy fight, a necessary fight, a fight that needed to happen. And it's gonna show us that even like in our lives and in our church, there are some things as Christians that are worth like having like this aggressive fight for and so just to give you a little context for why this is so important, if you, if you look at, uh, at chapter 15, we're going we're gonna to start in verse 1, and it just says the word but, because last week what we saw 
is that the early church had become this vibrant, diverse, attractive community, like this light shining in a dark world. People are worshiping God. They're loving one another. The movement is growing. Look at just the last, look at verse 27 of chapter 14 and see how the story ended last week. It says, when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how they had opened a door or how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And there remained no little time with the disciples and so there's this picture that like the gospel has grown. God has done his thing in the church. It's, it's healthy. It's worshiping him. They, they remained like no little time together. Like they love being together. They love it. But this threat that arises, you see the word but at the start of this, uh, chapter 15. That's what chapter 15 is going to be about. This threat that comes in. This church, this vibrant community of Jesus has a threat that could destroy everything that it's been built on. This threat goes to the very heart of what the church is. It's a threat that Paul later will describe in Galatians chapter 5 is something that will sever the church from Christ. As he's talking about this threat, he says, like, you are severed from Christ if this threat wins your heart. In Galatians 1, he says, like, in anger, I am astonished that some of you are so quickly deserting him who called you. So this threat, this thing worth fighting against is a threat that will undo everything that Jesus died to do in the church. And to give into it is to desert Jesus. So what do we do when something threatens the heart of our church, this body of believers? What do we do if like, we see this in our church? We fight. And that's what we're going to see happening in Acts 15. So let's read the first 19 verses to get a little understanding of what this fight is about. Starting in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, so that's the threat this false teaching that is called legalism. Verse two. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So they had no small dissension and debate. That means it was a big fight. Like this was a big argument. It was not small. Paul and Barnabas see this teaching, this teaching in verse two, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved and they have no small dissension and debate. It breaks out into a big fight, a fight worth fighting. Verse three. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and it brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So there it is again, this teaching. It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And then he puts his foot in the ground in verse 11 and he says this. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So there's the counter to the fight. It's grace. Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. 
Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So let's start there for now. The threat in this church is the threat of a false teaching, a false belief called legalism. And the response of the church that we see in verse 11 is to fight back for a belief in grace. And so here's just like the big idea of the passage. We need to actually fight as a church to keep believing in grace because the threat of legalism is always lurking, always threatening to take over the very heart of what the church is. And so what we're going to do in this message is basically look at this, this fight for grace. We're going to talk about what's at stake, like what do we lose when we lose grace. And then they're going to talk about this thing called the burden of grace and what it means to actually be a church that lives by grace. So let's start with the fight. The fight in Acts 15 revolves around like this like theological question. What is required for salvation with God and inclusion in the people of God? What is, what is like required to be saved by God and then to be included in the people of God? To put it more simply, what do you have to do to become a Christian? That's what the fight is over, like that question. And on one side of the debate, we have this false teaching called legalism. Here's the essence of legalism. Salvation and inclusion is achieved through Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus fill in the, in the blank. In this case, it's this thing called circumcision. This group of people, this group of legalists, they're called the Judaizers. And they're saying that it's circumcision according to the Old Testament customs of Moses. That is the, G, the Jesus plus Something. So if you look at verse 1, it says, Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then in verse 5, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep them, or in order for them to keep the law of Moses. And so if you like look at it carefully, it's not actually that they're denying Jesus and the forgiveness that he offers. They're just saying you need Jesus plus these like additional requirements. You need Jesus and you need to be circumcised according to the Old Testament Jewish law or else you cannot be saved. Forgiveness of sins is necessary. Like God needs to forgive you, but then you also need to physically alter what your body looks like. This external marker that you belong to God. You basically need Jesus and you need to become Jewish like us. So let me back up for a minute because it's like hard to understand these things without understanding more of just the context of the story of the Bible. So maybe if you don't even know much about the Old Testament, here's just like a, a brief little overview of what this whole thing with circumcision is about. Because these teachers, they're actually not being random and just kind of throwing this random idea out there. They're being very devout to Old Testament religion. In the Old Testament, the custom of Moses that they're referring to, it taught that all Jewish boys had to be circumcised as like this outward symbol that they belonged to God. And circumcision was a way for the people of God to visibly look different from the countries around them. It was something that God actually instituted it was a way for God's people to physically, just one of many ways, but one of the ways that they looked different than the people around them, saying, we worship like the God of Israel. It was a symbol of their covenant relationship with God. In the same way that like a wedding ring is a symbol of my covenant relationship with my wife, circumcision meant that you were Jewish. You belonged to God. You were a part of the people of God. Okay? Old Testament. And the problem that like keeps coming up in the Old Testament, the whole story of the Old Testament is full of circumcised Jews who don't want God. 
Like the, like the very like symbol that they had, this external marker, the whole Old Testament is filled with stories of Jewish men that like had that symbol and they did not want or have the thing that it pointed to. They didn't worship him. They were unfaithful to the covenant. The outward symbol of circumcision in the Old Testament basically said nothing about the actual quality of their worship and affections towards God. And the external like altering of their body actually did nothing to change them into the types of people that wanted to worship God. Their sinful hearts were not changed by the external marker of circumcision. Are you tracking with me on that? It's this external versus internal thing. So the Old Testament, one of the things that you see happen is that circumcision essentially fails. Like it doesn't accomplish the thing that it's being pointed to. And so being ethnically and culturally Jewish also fails because Israel fails. And that's just like one thread you could pull through the whole Old Testament story of the Bible. One tension that's there is one of these problems that doesn't get solved until Jesus comes. Because when, when the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah spoke about like the future hope of the people of God, he didn't talk about the old covenant. He talked about this, this new covenant. He spoke and he had like this angst and this longing in him as he looked at just like the way that things were not working out for Israel. He had this angst and this longing that one day God would make like a new arrangement a new way for people to relate with him that would actually allow them to worship him truly. This is what Jeremiah like prophesied about. He said, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, like, like inside of them. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is covenant language. He's saying one day it's not going to be like this external thing of circumcision, but people are going to belong to me, not because of a marking on their body, but because of this like internal marking on their hearts. And it's not a marking that any man can perform, but it's something that only I can do. Only I can like get deep enough in there to change your heart in this way. And Jeremiah continues, he says, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and teach his brother saying, know the Lord, for they just shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Why? Because I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. The whole Old Testament story is groaning with this longing that like we, we need a transformation deeper than circumcision. We need a transformation deeper than this external altering of our physical appearance. We need new hearts that actually want to love God, not new rituals that allow us to basically just fake it. Because that's what you can do with an external ritual. Is you, can, you can perform it with a heart that is so far from God. And so when Jesus comes, he starts to teach about this. This is one of the core things of Jesus' teaching. As you now open the New Testament of your Bible and you see things like the Sermon on the Mount, the thing that was so radical about what Jesus was doing is he was calling for a heart transformation, an internal heart transformation. So everybody, especially the religious elite, always come up to Jesus and say, they say like, what do I need to do? Give me the list of rules. Give me like the new thing that I need to do that I can just check off my list, knowing that my heart doesn't really have to change. And all Jesus wants to talk about is heart transformation. And then the day before he goes to the cross, the night that he was betrayed, he says this, this cup symbolizes the blood that is gonna be poured out on the cross. And this blood that is poured out on the cross is this new covenant and when he said new covenant, all the faithful Jews would have went back to Jeremiah and known that like, this is it. This is the moment. This is the way. Through his blood shed on the cross, Jesus enacted a new covenant, bringing about the possibility of changed hearts. 
And we just sung about it in the song, the coming of, of like the Holy Spirit to the church that we saw in Acts chapter two. What we see happening is this promise from Jeremiah, this promise from Jesus in action. And so if you remember the story, the first people, these first like Jewish people that hear the gospel proclaimed, these men that were circumcised, it says they were cut to the heart. They had already been cut physically and externally, but upon the preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes and it says they are cut to the heart. And they don't experience salvation until they are cut to the heart, deep to the heart. It's an inward transformation that is needed to really belong to God and to even want God. Okay, so back to the text, back to the the legalists, back to the threat. So now we see that for them to rise up upon this like growing church community and say like, hey, the, the Gentiles, they need to be circumcised in order to be saved. We Jews are already circumcised and we're Christians, but these people that aren't Jews, they need Jesus and they need to also be Jewish. And for them to say that is not just kind of like some small error, but it is a massive demonic threat. Like this is, this is a lie from, from Satan. It's actually to miss everything about what it means to belong to God. It's a teaching that'll keep people from being saved. You see like the irony in that. They're saying, unless you get circumcised, you can't be saved. And actually, this is a threat to the very heart of the gospel. You actually can't be saved if you think you need to do something external to be saved. And this threat, it constantly just redisguises itself throughout church history. In Acts, it takes the form of circumcision, and you see that in a lot of the New Testament letters. But in our day, it could be just like a million different things. It's, it's Jesus plus something equals salvation. So it could be like Jesus plus being an American is salvation. You need Jesus and you need to start volunteering in the community because there's, it's like he paid for your debt, but you need to basically like pay it forward and do some other things to, to maintain that or, or help him out. He's, Jesus is like, I did the cross. Can't you help me out and like do something to kind of pay for your sins? You need Jesus and you need to speak in tongues. Like you need, you need him, but then you also need like this additional thing. It's like his grace, but it's also like this, this other like external marker. You need Jesus, and you need to go to confession every week. Like, you need, you need him to forgive your sins, but then you, like you, you have to. You absolutely have to do this external ritual where you go to confession every week. You need Jesus, and you need to drink pour-over coffee. It, the list could go on and on. There, legalism, it takes all these different forms and disguises, and the, the formula, though, is always Jesus plus something else equals your salvation. Do you feel this pull at all in your own life? You gotta fill in, fill in the gap for yourself. It's, it's a pull towards living or towards believing that your salvation comes from Jesus and then something else that you have to do to pull it off. It's based on him and it's based on your own effort. You're saved because of what Jesus did on the cross and because of what you contributed, maybe through your church attendance or your tithing. This is, this is like such a just normal way of understanding God for so many people. I had a football coach in college that he, he knew that I was a Christian and he would, always, he would like try to connect with me. <laughs> and he would be like, God helps those who help themselves, right, Ronnie? He'd be like talking about football and talking about how we need to like work together as a team and all contribute. And then he'd try to illustrate and like relate it back to me. And he'd be like, God helps those who help themselves, right? And I remember one time I was just like, because like, I was understanding the gospel, I was like, actually, Coach, God only helps those who can't help themselves. Like, it's like you have it actually completely backwards. God doesn't help people who, can't, who can help themselves. And the good news is that actually all of us can't help ourselves. 
Okay, that's, like, that's the good news of the gospel that we're going to get to. And so maybe, maybe some of you, though, you feel more of the pull of legalism as it relates to this belonging in the church. Maybe you get it with God, but you feel it more here. Like you look around and you say, I, I belong here in this church community or any community because of Jesus and because of fill in the blank. And there's a real way where like a church needs to express itself in a certain culture. Like I think like this, the type of music that we do here, like we need to strike the right balance of being like, how can it be diverse enough to actually represent Madison, but like focused enough to actually like have a, a plan that we can like actually come up here and do something. So that's not like legalism. It's just, it's just like appropriate expression of church, right? But there's all kinds of other ways that somebody could walk into a room, could walk into Doxa and think, so to belong here, I need... I need Jesus, and then I also need like this other thing. I need to have this certain personality. I need to like have the hobbies that like these people seem to have. I need to have the same political views. I need to have the same ethnicity or age, or like all of those things can slip into this lie of legalism. And one of the things that made them so mad is they were they were just like, guys, haven't you seen our history? Like like legalism doesn't work. Like, in the end, it just absolutely doesn't work. Peter calls this a yoke or burden that no one has been able to bear. Therefore, they conclude, we shouldn't even trouble these Gentiles who turn to God. So against the false threat of legalism, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The Christians reply, no, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. That's their, that's their counterpunch. They face legalism by fighting for a belief in grace. So let's talk about grace. Let's, let's fight against any pull of legalism that's among us by fighting for grace. Here's grace. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Jesus alone, like everything that is necessary for your salvation is contained in him and in grabbing onto him. Salvation with God, inclusion in the people with God. Jesus plus nothing. And maybe you wandered in here today and you, like that question is, is a question you've, you've asked. Like what do I have to do to become a Christian? What does it take? Here's the answer. You have to come to God, and you know what you have to bring when you come to God? You have to come to God, and you have to bring with you open and empty hands, ready to receive grace. You don't come to God with something in your hands. There's a song that says, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling, because it's only with your open and empty and needy hands that you can grab onto the grace that can save you. You need to bring nothing but your need. If you wandered in here today and you're wondering, like, what do I need to do to become a Christian? You need to bring nothing but your need. You need the open and empty hands of faith that are humbly ready to receive grace. So Peter puts his foot down on this. He puts his foot down and he says, we believe. This, this is what this church believes. This is what Doxa believes, that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. And I want to make this abundantly clear, because that's what they're trying to do. We're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, period. If you add anything to grace, you actually subtract from grace. Either Jesus saves us all the way, or we can't be saved. If you start to add requirements onto the end of salvation by grace, you basically open up a window of possibilities for a million other requirements to come with it, and you close the door to salvation. What Grace believes is that Jesus earned our salvation through his life, death, and resurrection, and therefore there's nothing left for us to earn. He either saves us completely or we're completely doomed. Like there's just, it's so black and white like that. 
And did you notice the arguments that they make? Like, while they're in the middle of this fight, he's, he like puts his foot down on grace, and then their arguments, first it's from experience. Peter's like, haven't you looked at our history? Haven't you seen what God is doing? Look what he says in verses 7 through 10. He says, you know, in the early days, God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. He's like, have you not seen our history? Have you not looked at your own life? Have you not like, realized that circumcision did nothing to change you? Haven't you seen that legalism is an impossible way of relating with God? Like, it's, just, it's just so obvious from experience that human beings cannot save themselves, cannot find their way back to God. But then they back up the argument from experience with the argument from Scripture. This is where Paul and Barnabas, they chime in in verse 12. And they say, haven't you seen God do these things? James stands up and he quotes a prophecy from the Old Testament book of Amos, which basically says, like, it has been God's plan all along. Like, the, the constant thread throughout the Old Testament of the Bible is that God is saving people by grace. And in response to their arguments, the whole assembly, it says, just falls silent. Grace wins out. The crisis is averted. But what we need to know today is legalism is, like, always trying to find a way to sneak back in. And so one of the things that we need to just, like, feel from this is we need to have, like, theological clarity about grace, Okay? Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Like we need to have that in our heads. It needs to be in our hearts. But we need to be on guard knowing that we can constantly slip into legalism. So I want to just like point out a couple quick things that are at stake in this fight to, to motivate us. Like This is what is at stake if we lose grace. If we lose grace, our joy is at stake. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, Paul and, Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas are on their way to, like, to have this fight about grace, and it says they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. So they're, they're like on their way. I don't know how they're, how they're getting there. Like they're they're uh, ready for this argument, this theological fight about grace, and they just can't help but on the way just proclaim grace. They can't help but see these people that have been saved by the grace of God and just, and just rejoice and proclaim with them, and it brings joy. It says they described in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, the, the very details of their story, the very specific sins that were forgiven, the very specific way that God kind of went into their story and lifted them up and saved them. And it says it brought great joy to all the brothers. And when we look at the details of people's stories and we see how God saved them, it leads us to joy. Joy is at stake if we lose grace. All of us have, you know, like if you're, if you're in a work environment and someone is sharing about how they got promoted in that work environment, they earned it, they, they did it on their own. There's a, an amount of like kind of joy that you can have if you too are also succeeding and thriving. And maybe if you got a promotion, you can be happy for them. But if you didn't get promoted like they did, it leads to insecurity. Okay. And what joy does is it basically levels the playing field or what grace does is it levels the playing field. Because we all just kind of come to the cross with open hands and we all receive grace. And if we lose grace, we lose jo this kind of joy that's for all people because none of us earned it. And a church that loses grace just becomes toxic and self-righteous over time because there's the people that were good enough, there's the people that weren't good enough, and we're all kind of striving up this mountain. But if we, if we are a church that believes in grace, we're a church that has a real shot at joy. The second one is that God's glory is at stake. 
So these are not small things, right? Verse 12, he says, all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Don't you guys want to be a church that is like an evidence of what God has done, not what we have done? It's actually like what our name means. What doxa means is, is glory. But if we lose grace, if we drift away from grace, no one in our city is going to fall silent when they hear about the things happening in doxa because there's a ton of really cool things that people are doing in Madison, a ton of things that human effort and human brilliance are doing in Madison. But if we want to be a church that shines bright with the glory of God, we have to be a church that fights to believe in grace. Another thing that's at stake is God's faithfulness and the Bible's trustworthiness are at stake. Peter asked the question to them, like, why are you putting God to the test with this legalism? James says, brothers, listen to me. Peter's right. With the words of the prophets agreed, just as it is written, he quotes, he quotes scripture. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. This is like the story of, of the Bible is actually God's story of grace, his promises and actions. It's always something that he will accomplish, something that he will do. He will rebuild a ruined humanity. And when we slip into legalism, we're denying like the faithfulness of God. We're denying the story of the Bible. We're doubting that the Bible's story is true. And then the last one, the restoration of all things is at stake. Like the, like the whole plan of redemption is at stake if we lose grace. Like any hope that humanity has that this world can be recreated and renewed is at stake if we lose grace. That's what the prophecy in Amos 9 is talking about. It's talking about the day when God is going to restore what has been ruined by sin. He's going to recreate the universe by calling a people. It calls it a remnant that's made up of both Jews and Gentiles. This whole thing, the whole renewed humanity is God by his grace, giving it to us, not us earning it by our effort. And so if we stop fighting to believe in grace, we're saying to God that we think we can fix the brokenness of this world on our own. And that has never worked. Throughout history, that has never worked. So if we lose grace, we lose the restoration of all things. Basically, everything hangs on grace. Like, we lose grace, we lose everything. We lose grace, we lose Jesus. And that's why we need to fight to keep believing in grace in our heart and in our church. And that's why Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate, because this is a huge deal. So Doxa, like, let's, let's fight for grace in our lives and in our community. And this could be one of those moments where we, where we get kind of like super pumped about this, but then have actually no idea what, what this even means and what to do. And we're just kind of like running into each other and running into walls. So the last question we got to deal with is, what, what do we actually have to, to do how does a community that fights for grace, believes in grace, live? Because what we learned is we don't have to all get circumcised. So do we have to do anything? And every community has to be defined by like some type of, of requirement. There has to be some distinction, some, something that everybody is, is gathering around, some boundary line. The word they use here is, is like a burden. And they say that the burden of legalism doesn't work. The burden of legalism is impossible for sinful people to bear. But there's a different burden. There's a burden of grace that is upon our community. So let's read the rest of the story in, in chapter, or verse 19. So this is what they say. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. 
Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Bersabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. So this is a letter that they're writing. Verse 24, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, and although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements." that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep these things from these, you will do well. Farewell. <laughs> Verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Okay, so if you caught that, they basically send this, this letter of what, like, the fight for grace has been won. What do we now do? And they basically say this, we're not going to restrict you Gentiles to Jewishness and circumcision, but we are going to restrict you to, like, this certain thing with food and this certain view of sexuality. So at this point, we're kind of like, What? I thought, I thought grace was about like no restrictions, but he says in verse 20, we shouldn't trouble the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled from blood. Verse 28 and 29, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. So they're, they're like our requirements that come with grace, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And he just says, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So what, so what do we do with this, right? If you thought grace was Jesus plus nothing, like, you're right. So why is he now telling me it's Jesus plus something about the way I eat and something about what I do with my sexuality? It kind of seems like it comes out of nowhere. What does this all have to do with grace? Well, everything has everything to do with grace. So let's, let's look into that, and this is how we're, we're going to end. What does grace demand of us? Let me just contrast it for you like this. The burden of legalism that they're talking about, they say it's this burden that we can't bear, and this is it. It's work your way to God. You have to work your way to God. Change your life. You, you have to change your life, and maybe one day you might be good enough to be with him. That's the burden of legalism. Here's, here's the burden of grace, as they call it in the letter. God did all the work to get to you. So be with him. Like, God did all the work to come down to you, and so the burden over your life, the burden of grace is be with him. The burden of grace is to be with Jesus. The gift of grace isn't like this free ticket to heaven, but it's like Jesus' hand in yours. It's a relationship with God. The requirement of grace is that you do things that help you pursue that relationship and bring you closer to him. The claim of grace over your life and over our community is that we belong to him. 
That's the burden of grace. That's like the, the weight that gets put over us by grace is to be with God, to be with Jesus. This is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 11 when he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's talking about the burden of legalism coming off, the burden of trying to climb a mountain to God coming off, and he's saying, I'm, I'm down here. I came from heaven to earth to be with you, so now come to me. The burden of legalism is off your back. The burden of grace is here, and my name is Jesus. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So whenever we hear any teaching from the Bible that feels like a weight, it feels like a requirement, it feels like a burden, it is the weight of having a relationship with the God who loves you. Like that's what the weight is. He calls it a yoke, a way of life. It's the burden of Jesus taking you by the hand and pulling you away from that path of destruction that's so familiar to you and pulling you towards the path of life. And two things that get pointed out in this text that take us away from Jesus are idolatry and sexual immorality. The burden of grace would pull us away from those things because those things pull us away from Jesus. So let's just talk about those two things and then we'll be done. Here's idolatry. Idolatry, it's worshiping created things rather than the creator. It's loving created things more than or in place of, of Jesus. In the case of Gentiles, it had something to do with like the food that they were eating because it was being sacrificed to these false gods and these idols. But the food isn't the point. It points to this, this principle that even something good that God created can be actually substituted for him in our hearts. And we can worship it. We can bow down to it. And we do this with like everything. We so easily do this. We do this with our jobs. We turn our jobs into like these mini gods that we sacrifice everything for. Everything for to find meaning and fulfillment. We turn our families into idols at times. Like this is the place, like it's like our children that we find all of our value and our worth and our security in. We turn entertainment into an idol. It's the thing that gets all of our attention, all of our devotion. And the list could just go on and on and on. The possibilities for idolatry are endless and we become like what we worship. So if you worship Aaron Rodgers, you become like Aaron Rodgers. Like you, you become like this object that you are looking to. If you worship Jesus, you start to become like Jesus. If you want to worship your career, great. You have to earn it. You have to climb the ladder. You have to make the sacrifice. That's actually a form of legalism. It's the interesting thing about idols. The way that idols try to form us into their image is actually through like the burden of legalism. That's why we are exhausted when we worship idols. And that's why Jesus offers us rest. That's why the burden of grace is, is like good news. It's God laying this burden on us saying, I want to make you into my image by calling you to be with me, to be with Jesus. So we have to flee from idolatry. We also have to abstain from, from sexual immorality. And this is, this is a hard one. This is one that you need to like talk carefully about because there's, there's so many wounds in the room. There's so many questions that we have. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of outrage in this area in our culture. And we don't, we don't have time to like Un unpack a million things. So I just want to say a couple, a couple simple things as this relates to grace. Because the question is, like, God loves you with a love you don't deserve, and he has a command over your life and your sexuality. And we tend to view the Bible's teaching on sexuality to be a burden. That's just the, the natural way we look at it, a restraint, a restriction, something that is oppressing us and holding us back. And it's worth asking, like, why can't we just move on from that in the same way that we've moved on from circumcision. 
It's worth asking that question. Isn't, isn't that just like a, a, another burden on us that keeps us from being free? But the same men that just fought against that burden of legalism with the Gentiles are now saying, the burden of sexual purity is on you, Christian. And the only way to make sense of this is to realize, guys, that sexual purity isn't a burden at all, but it's a freedom and a gift. It's a freedom and a gift. The, the vision from the Bible, from Genesis chapters 1 and 2, is that marriage and sexuality is like actually this gift for our flourishing. In Genesis chapter 1, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So from the beginning, marriage and sexuality is meant to lead to like flourishing for the whole creation. Then he gets more specific in chapter two and he says this, the man Adam, he gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So we see woman being taken from man's side as like this indispensable complement to him. He can't image God. He can't fulfill his created purpose without her. She must be, and she must be different from him. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother Hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's like the account of biblical marriage and sexuality from Genesis. And we see like the two main restrictions, two main burdens around this. One of them is complementary genders, and the other one is covenant commitment. Complementary genders, one man, one woman. Covenant commitment forever. One man, one woman forever. And this, I know it, like I know, this sounds restrictive and oppressive, and we need to have careful conversations around these, but did you notice that the whole vision for this is blessing and life and joy from God and his design? You can picture it like a, like a river that when, a, like this, just picture this powerful river that is freely flowing, and the free flow of that river and the benefit of that river for everything else around it is that it has like these two sturdy banks next to it. And the Bible's vision for marriage and sexuality is that it would be like this free-flowing river of joy and pleasure and blessing in between the restrictive banks of complementarity and covenant. One man, one woman, forever. That's what makes the river flow with purpose and focus and joy and life and protection. It's good. And the Apostle Paul would say it's not even just like for our blessing and for our good, but it's also for our glory. In Ephesians 5, he points to this very passage and says, that thing, like that, that biblical marriage sexuality thing is actually a profound mystery pointing to Jesus and his church. God is inviting us to like point to his glory by obeying this burden from grace. And so we abstain from sexual immorality because it actually like obscures the image of God in us. And we were made to portray the image of God. We were made to portray his glory. So the fight for grace is actually a fight against sin. It's a fight to be with Jesus instead of being with our idols. It's actually a fight to be like Jesus in our sexual purity. And the burden of grace is God like lovingly conforming us into the image of Jesus. So let me pray for us.
God, I thank you for just the, the teaching of, of the Bible that, that takes the burden of, of earning it off of us and gives us you as, as our Savior. God takes the, the burden of legalism that says we have to earn it, that, have, that says we have to sacrifice more, and gives us you as like our perfect, righteous, and holy sacrifice. God, we want to we wanna worship you like, in, like empowered by grace this morning. We, I pray that, that all of the, the guilt and the shame that, that comes into this room every Sunday would just fall off of us as we, as we remember and sing the gospel. God, that you've saved us by sheer grace. God, let the burdens come off. God, let us be free in our worship.